Well, in, in Acts 11, we read that Barnabas exhorted the believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, and I wanted to do that and try to do that over the last few sermons, but now I want to return to Genesis and aware that uh, my time is in or may be coming to an end here in the next few months. I want to try to finish this series and not that much in terms of chapters, but we usually go at a little bit of a slower pace with me. Hope you don't mind. Um, Genesis 46, we got through verse um, 27 last time. It's been a few weeks. So we're picking up at verse 28 of chapter 46, and we're just going to read down through verse 6 of chapter 47. Let me do that now. He, which is uh, Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and then came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell, Joseph, tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Goshen. They are now in the land of, from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you are able, if you have able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, again, how can we not rejoice? How can we not sing? How can we not celebrate? How can we not worship? Because you are so glorious, perfect, holy, having dominion over all things, loving even us, and being just always, always just, always loving, always embracing any poor who come to you in Jesus. There is no one outside the kingdom who would come, who would come saying, I turn away from sin. I don't want idols. I want Jesus. I want the way of Christ. 
I want the good land that Christ provides. We rejoice indeed as we just sung and we thank you for the benefits we have in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen. Sometimes we say, when things are going well or when something comes to us that is just good and pleasant, something desirable, something welcome, we say, God is good. And it's right to rejoice in the goodness of our God at those times. It's right to be thankful for the gifts He gives to us. But there's perhaps even a little bit of an intimation in that, in, in that response that perhaps when things aren't quite so welcome, things aren't quite so good, when things come to us that aren't desirable, that maybe God's not good, but we really don't believe that. I understand that. It's not true. God's always good. He cannot be otherwise. Goodness is His very nature. God has been good to Joseph throughout all of these chapters, through all of these years of Joseph's life since he was 17 years old until now. God had been good to Joseph. That was his own testimony. His own words. God meant it for good. What? What's it? Everything. Jail, slavery, false accusation, estranged from his family, God meant it for good. And God's been good to Jacob. Jacob didn't understand it for a good while, and he complained, all these things are against me. Everything's bad. Nothing's turning out the way I had hoped. All these things are against me when, in fact, they were for him. We can be like that, can't we? Things come bad and we're like, oh, woe is me. Life is tough. I'm not saying it's not. But God is good. I've said before that these chapters telling of uh, Joseph and Judah and Jacob, it's a Romans 8.28 story. God means it all for good. God works out all things together for good because God is always good to His people. He cannot be otherwise. He cannot be a bad father. So remember in our last study, Jacob's family, numbering 70, they arrived in Egypt. Now they had come from Canaan. They had left Canaan. Well, that was the land promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They left that land, the land promised, for Egypt. We know, knowing how the story goes in the Bible, we know that someday they will return. But God had a wonderful plan for their lives. Now, in Egypt. Now, at this time. So notice in verse 28 where we began that Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. Remember that Judah had become the family leader back a while ago. Judah was now more, really more than Jacob. 
Judah was the leader of the sons of Israel. And his role at this time was to go ahead to Joseph, to ask Joseph to meet his father and family in Goshen, and then and, and show them the way to their new homeland, which Joseph had uh, previously promised to them. So it's Judah who leads them into the land where they will, they didn't know for how long, but where they will be safe, where they will prosper. And if you were to look ahead at Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, at the end of that long period of time, you will see that they prospered. They became a vast, from 70 to this vast nation, this huge, innumerable family. As God promised Abraham, like the stars of the sky, we begin to see that Abrahamic promise being fulfilled, even that early in Scripture. So it's interesting that Joseph had been a wonderful type of Christ, and Joseph provided that land of safety and prosperity. Joseph, by his authority, by his rule under Pharaoh, said, yes, you can have this land. It's free. It's my gift to you. It's a good land. It's your land now. It's your home. But Judah, the father of Jesus, the father of the Christ, led the family into that land. So whether you focus on Joseph or Judah, by New Testament revelation, the greater revelation we have now, your eyes point to whom? To Jesus. Joseph, the type of Christ, Judah, the father of Christ. Our eyes are turned to Jesus, who is our prosperity, who is our hope. He is our life. I love, I I did a series a long time ago on the seven I am sayings in in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And this is who Jesus is for you, my friends, my beloved. He said, I am the bread of life, bread of life. He is our uh, nutrition, so to speak. He is is like that bag of food that we deliver to the poor people that keeps us alive. He is the light of the world. We don't walk in darkness. He is the door of the sheep. We enter the sheepfold. He is the good shepherd. We know what that is. He, He feeds, he protects He cherishes. He is the resurrection and the life. Though we die, yet shall we live. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is the true vine. So He is our food, our protection, our nourishment, our life, our access to God. And regarding that true vine, He said this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a few things. No, thank you. You can do nothing, not a zilch, nothing. If Jacob had stubbornly remained in the land, said, no, this is the land. I'm staying here. I'm not going to Egypt. His family would have perished. 
He would have starved to death. But because they got up and went to the land promised uh, by Joseph or given by Joseph, and they obeyed the command of God in chapter 46, they lived and they prospered because Christ is our life in our prosperity and our abundance because apart from him, we could do nothing. Apart from him, there's only hopelessness and death. Like some of you, some of you are older than I am, some of you are younger than I am, but I grew up in the days of rock and roll, and so it's interesting to look back all these years later. We had 50 years from 69 to 2019, all kind of 50-year histories. It's been fascinating. Uh, and so on the plane, it's a short flight to Nicaragua. Gotta love that, man. Three and a half hours, I was there. Whew, that's just getting going to India. That's just like the introduction. So I, ba <laughs> I barely got through one movie each way. But being a child of, the, of that era, I watched two films, one on the way down, one on the way back. Rocket Man, the story of Elton John, and Bohemian Rhapsody, which I hadn't seen, the story of Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of, of Queen. And... Uh, Interesting stories. I, I didn't know how similar the lives of those two were, both rejected by their fathers to some extent, both lives of, of hopelessness, both seeking after love and not finding it, both going to homosexuality to find love, they thought. One's dead, one's still alive. Very different men, different music, but very different stories. They sought drugs, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll, right? You know, if you stubbornly refuse God's offer of life in Christ, there's no hope. You will die. Or if you're one of us and you profess Christ, but you drift away, you're like that boat that drifts out into the lake or into the ocean. You wander away from Jesus You'll be like that branch that falls off the vine, and you'll turn from green to brown to rotting on the ground. God is good. He gives wonderful gifts to His children. Think about this reunion of Jacob and Joseph. <laughs> I love these stories. The last time Jacob and Joseph had seen each other was when Joseph was 17 years old. And you remember what happened. He was in his father's house, and his brothers were far away. And his father sent him out, saying, go check on the wealth of your brothers. I hadn't heard from them. You know, they hadn't checked it on their cell phones or they sent an email. Joking, of course. Check on their welfare. And fairly ordinary day. It probably had happened before, I suppose. I don't know. But Jacob sent his son off, and that was it. He never again heard a word from him, never saw him, never had an embrace, never shared a conversation. Never for all these years, over two decades, had passed. And now Jacob had come into Joseph's house. And they were face to face again. 
You know, we are empty nesters. Our son lives locally. We see him a fair amount. Hopefully see him and our grandson maybe today, Lord willing. But our daughter's at a little bit of distance. And even when our daughters come home after being away for several months, it's like, oh, it's so good to hug you. It's so good to see you. It's so good to talk. It's so good. Just after a few months, can you imagine after 20-something years and thinking your son was dead, that grief, that pain, and suddenly, wow, he's alive. Amazing. Amazing. And father and son, we're told, wept and held on to each other. Can you imagine? For a long time. They just couldn't believe it. We're together. I mean, Joseph didn't know if Jacob was still alive. He was an old man. God is good. And that goodness means he often surprises us with blessings, sometimes even beyond our imagination. Have you received such a gift? He sometimes gives you a gift that you long ago gave up hope of ever getting. Maybe a spouse. Maybe a job. I don't know. Last Sunday, I was ordained again and installed again in the PCA as a teaching elder. I long ago gave up hope of that. I never imagined two years ago or three years ago walking into this church would not have imagined that I would be the interim pastor for about 12 months. I wouldn't have even prayed for it. I wouldn't have prayed to regain my credentials in the PCA or to have this ministry with ELI. These things were beyond my imagination. I gave up on them long ago. But what about cancer? Round two for me. Is God not good then? Might that also be a gift? Might it be? You know, the Bible promises blessing from suffering. I used to not understand James 1, 2. In fact, I wanted to be a, like... Uh, what's his name, former president, and chop it out of the Bible. Blessed is the one who has various trials. I thought, no, that's not blessed. I have this on my refrigerator from, from Romans 5. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we, re re we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I dare say, cancer has been something of a gift to me and to Barbara, I trust. I haven't asked her. A challenge, yes, but God is good. He works out all things. How many things? All, all things. And Paul said this in Ephesians 3.20, you know it. Now to him 
who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, all that we can even imagine or dream or fantasize according to the power that works within us. God pours out his blessing. The infinite God pours out blessings to his people because he loves us in Christ and because we are his family. We are his children. And he is a wealthy God and he has gifts to give. And Goshen was one of those gifts that he gave to his people. But why Goshen? Notice that that Joseph is very careful to ensure that his family is placed in Goshen, not in Egypt. Well, not in uh, with the Egyptians. In fact, he even wants Pharaoh to 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 know for sure that these men are shepherds. They have been there for generations. They've been shepherds, knowing that. Shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Normally, we want our friends to like our family. Right? Do you tell your friends, you know, my family, they're kind of losers and you really don't want to be around them because they're kind of jerks and whatnot? No, my family's wonderful. You want to meet them. You know, I came from them. Well, for one reason... We know that Goshen was largely unsettled. It was open. It was available. It was a a land of fertile fields and rich pastures. It was perfect for shepherds keeping sheep. The developers had not yet come in and put in their malls and their subdivisions and all their stores. Okay, so that's my bias. But it was, as Pharaoh said, the best of the land. But remember, all Scripture is kingdom-focused. It's what God is doing to fulfill His covenant promise to Abraham. God promised him an offspring, that he'd be a vast nation of people, a large family, and a blessing. And he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he promised land, this land, where Abraham was at that time, the land of Canaan. But Jacob had just left that land, the land of promise. And yet God is still bringing them into a good land. He called it, or uh, Joseph called it, the best of all the land. Land is a very important theme in Scripture, beginning with the Garden of Eden. It represents in Scripture the land of God's promise, the land of God's presence, and blessing. But eschatologically, it points to the new earth and that final fulfillment of God dwelling with his people. And he says in Revelation, you shall dwell with me and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And it's Jesus, the last Adam, who brings that to fulfillment. So even now, beloved, if you are in Christ... God has you in a good land. God has you in a good land because He is present with you for blessing and for spiritual prosperity. I don't know what your... Well, to some extent I might know. But whatever your current circumstances are, what are they? God is good. Whether you have much or whether you have little, Whether you are strong and healthy, or whether you are weak and sick, whether you are young or old, married or single, employed or unemployed, God is working out how many things? 
all things. Do you believe that? Does God work out cancer for your good? Unemployment for your good? Uh, divorce for your good? The death of a spouse or a child? These things are challenging. But God works them for good. Time is marching on. It's getting away from me. Let's ask the question, why would Pharaoh allow these foreigners to dwell in the best of the land? Well, because every shepherd's an abomination to Egyptians, and it wouldn't work out for Israel to, to, to live with the Egyptians. But why was Joseph so concerned about Israel being separate from Egypt? Because Egypt was a, a pagan nation. They worshiped false gods. They had false worship, and Israel was the holy people of God. They served the living and true God. What did Israel have in common with Egypt? Paul said, Paul wrote, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them. In Goshen they could be this separate people of God. They could be separated from that worldly nation. And this is important because one of Satan's oldest, most commonly used and most successful tricks, by the way, is to mix believers and unbelievers through intermarriage, through cultural assimilation, through other means. And when this happens, Christian character is damaged. And the church, by the way, is usually destroyed. And maybe remember how Satan tempted the sons of Israel in Genesis 34 to violate that principle by intermarrying with the Shechemites. And Hamor said, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. Just be part of us. We're just one big happy family. It's all good. We'll all be the same, right? Pluralism. It's all good. You serve a different God. Who cares? It's all one way. Doesn't matter. Satan uses that so successfully in our own day. Pluralism and, and tolerance. Let's just mix everyone together. Let's everyone accept everyone else and not suggest one way is right, another way is wrong. You know, who cares? Male, female, any kind of gender. Let's come up with three or four or five or six or a dozen. It's all good. It doesn't matter. There's no one way. You know, one earth, one people, right? And schools promote it, where kids are intermixed in one classroom and taught one way, this way of secular thinking. If you take 10 lumps of clay and put them into one mold, they, they start out different shapes, but they come out together in one shape. That's what's going on today in our culture. It's going on in our schools, which is why high school students dress the same way and talk the same way, and, and they're just, they're just mass-produced. In fact, think about that. Henry Ford, my grandfather worked for Ford Motor Company. I'm, I'm a child of Detroit, Michigan. It's where I was born in Motown. Motown music is great stuff. Still listen to the Supremes. <laughs> but I grew up in Henry Ford country. He invented, didn't he, the uh, assembly line. Why? Because he could mass produce the Model T. Every car was exactly the same and he produced them quickly. 
That's what's going on today in our culture. Everything's mass-produced through media and education and music and entertainment. And even churches and Christians have submitted and become no different than the world around them, intermixing with the people and, and assimilating culture and cease being Christian, distinctively Christian. Because to be a believer is to be separate. It's to be a nonconformist. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But we are not like that. We have what? The mind of Christ. Jesus prayed, you are not, he's prayed they, but referring to the church, we are not of the world. We are of Christ. He said, just as I am not of the world, you are not of the world. Our identity is not the world, it's Christ. And so John don't, wrote, don't love the things of the world. Don't love the things of the world. If anyone does love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. You see, God is holy. And so we who bear the name of Jesus as Christians, we are holy. We are saints. The, the word saints means holy ones. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not somebody who's lived a perfect life. It's someone who's in Christ, someone who's a disciple of Christ. We are holy ones. We are not of the world. And that holiness is a gift of God. It's from His goodness. It's not legalism. Years ago when I used to hear that about Christians being holy, it came to me as this, this burden of, of law obedience that I couldn't manage because I couldn't keep those laws. And it was like this heavy burden. And it was grievous to me. But holiness is about relationship. The men heard yesterday morning that it's personal and relational. We are holy as we are in Christ and indwelled by His Holy Spirit. As we abide in Christ, as we cling to that vine, we become empowered to live holy lives as we reflect Jesus and become like Him. So holiness should be a great joy because it's your true humanity. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God as the holy children of God. They lived in the holy place, in the holy presence of God, as the holy children of God. And so holiness is our restoration to the image of God. It's to be like Jesus, the perfect man. You want to be the best person you can be? You want to have the best life you can have in this, in this world? Be holy. Be like Jesus. Abide in Him. Holiness is the student becoming like the teacher or the disciple becoming like the mentor. But Satan has this lie that serving God is miserable. It's no fun. It's a drudgery. Sin, now that's fun. That's the good time. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Right? 
And pop culture promotes that, especially to children and teens. Because Satan knows if he can capture a child's heart in his or youth, if he can capture that heart, he probably has that one for life. You know, many parents receive comfort from Proverbs 22.6. I bet every parent in here could recite that verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, the problem is that might not be a good translation. I'm about to bust your balloon. The words he should go is not in the Hebrew text. It's added in the, by the English translators. And that verse may actually be a warning and not a promise. What it may be saying is sort of uh, saying, train up, a, train up a child in his way, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Allow a child to go his own way, his own path, by not disciplining him, by not exhorting him, by allowing Satan to grip his heart. When he's old, he's going to be on that path forever. It's a sober thought that should motivate careful, diligent parenting. When I was a teenager in the early 70s, I didn't know the Lord, and I thought a life of self-seeking, pleasure-seeking would make me happy. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. So I rejected religion. I rejected God. Grew up Roman Catholic. Wanted nothing to do with it. Walked away. I didn't want God's way. I wanted my way. I was a New Yorker at that time. You know, Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. I wanted to stay in my land. But my land was the way of death. And fortunately, God opened my eyes so beautifully. Because sin is death, only Christ is life. Only Jesus is the abundant life because we can only be holy in Him. Holiness is our true humanity. Jesus only brings us into the best of the land. He is the Joseph. He is the Judah who brings us into the best of the land. But Satan is a really good liar. He's a really good deceiver. And he has people believing his lie left and right. Maybe some of us in this room, are you believing Satan's lie? Children, adults. Don't believe his lie. John 10, Jesus said that the thief comes in to steal and to rob and to destroy. But Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, for the protection and the safety of the sheep. Jesus is our Goshen. He is our protection. He is our safety. Follow the path of sinners. The way of Frank Sinatra and all the rest of them. Elton John and all the rest of them, and you will die. Abide in Christ, and you will live forever. Oh, Lord God, you are both just and the justifier of sinners. You are just to those who refuse Christ, who, who want their own way, their stubborn way, and they will die, rightfully so, for the penalty of sin is death, but you justify those who come to Christ and who cling to Christ, who abide in Christ. May there be everyone in this room, Lord, if there is anyone here who is stubbornly seeking their own way, staying in their own land, may they hear the voice of the shepherd even now saying, come, come, O sinner, come in faith and repentance, turn from your idols, 
Turn from your wicked ways. Embrace Christ. He is hope. He is life. He is the Goshen in which you'll find safety and abundance and prosperity. Oh, Lord God, we love you so much because you loved us beyond our imagination. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.